we reading the scriptures recognize that there that no no one is good but God, and so we don't look to ourselves and to our own uh, virtue and to our own strength, but we look uh, outside of ourselves to to God and His promises. Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here as always with Matt Kennedy of Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Good, Matt. Great. Nick and Matt. <laughs> good, good to hear you. You, you all have um, children like I do. We've been showing our kids um, that nature program Planet Earth recently. Do your kids still cry when the polar bear eats the seal? Yes, what? no. Well, what about when the fox? <laughs> I don't what about I... when the fox snatches the chick from its nest? Do you have emotional responses no. in your house to this? That gets repeated, actually. <laughs> Do it Slow again. it down. <laughs> that's right. Can we watch it from another angle, Dad? <laughs> I think that's uh, that's going to come back to haunt me. I'm afraid. So. Well, it's funny. Um, last night we watched an episode about the the Great Plains, the savannas of the world. And after the episode ended, we were watching a behind the scenes feature, and it was about how the camera crew that was filming um, this African savanna had mixed feelings filming a pride of lions overwhelming and killing a baby elephant, and they felt so bad about it they were actually hesitant to film it. They didn't want to shoot the footage, but the narrator said, uh, quote, no one likes to watch a hunt, especially when the odds are so stacked, but the film provides a valuable record of something rarely seen. Now, there's no moral component here. Lions eat elephants when they get hungry enough, but the program's desire to turn its eyes away from something unpleasant, but its then refusal to do so reminded me of the current American discussion around relics of the antebellum South. Now, as the modern American South grapples with what to do with statues of and buildings named after members of the Confederate aristocracy and whether or not to wave rebel flags at NASCAR events, the question before us is, what are we to do with the symbols of a past that we regret? Hmm. J.D., you grew up in the South. You went to a college, Washington and Lee, partly named after Robert E. Lee, the most famous Confederate of all. So I wonder, before we talked about the proposed eradication of these monuments and how the scriptures might inform our thinking about past sins. I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about these symbols from a Southern point of view. I know that Matt was born in Mississippi and is from Texas, but I'm going to give you first crack. I'm Make from, sure you say that. I'm yeah. from Virginia myself. Well, I'd be more than happy to speak on behalf of all Southerners. All um, Southerners, right. That's right. So, um, and that, I'm from Virginia, <laughs> but I'm from so far North in Virginia that I'm pretty much from Washington DC, which is not the South. So, why do well, sure. so many see these symbols as so constitutive of Southern experience? Well, um, there's a lot of uh, thoughts about that, and far be it for me to exhaust them all. But I have to just speak personally on it then, I think, because yeah. there's, there's some, I think, better and worse reasons to um, have any affinity for, for instance, General Lee. And I did grow up in Baton Rouge. Uh, my mom went to Robert E. Lee High School, which has now been renamed. Uh, it was renamed Lee High, and now it's being renamed something altogether different, I think, as we speak. Um, and I also did go to Washington and Lee University, which the heart of the school has a chapel where um, Lee is lying in 
uh, rest with um, all of the Confederate uh, battle flags surrounding him and his portrait um, is up or down, depending on whatever current administration was. And so for at least the very least 20 years of my adult life, um, I've been involved in this uh, discussion with respect to my alma mater, which has now been taken to a uh, to the national stage, because the conversation has always been on the balance between lionizing the man, the myth, or the legend. You know, and so uh, there are for definitely people who um, who have a sense of uh, nostalgia for the parts of the antebellum South, which we would, as Christian people in particular, find abhorrent, namely the institution of slavery, you know, the people who are um, legitimately look back at sort of a different time of life and hearken back to those you know, good old days of yore. And so I don't think that's, um, that's worthy of much discussion, frankly. Uh, but there is, at least as far as I know, having grown up and then attended a school with, uh, to, them, to Robert E. Lee, who's, who's in the um, discussion right now, there was always basically an assumption that there was a an agreed upon evil on the history of our of our world, frankly, in Western civilization, but specifically in America, that was, um, you know, that was addressed during the Civil War and that is continuing to work itself out, and that the people involved, both before and during the war, were mixed bags. They were they were saints and sinners, and so that there was an they idea. Were human beings. Exactly. There's an idea, and particularly about Robert E. Lee, that that something about him represented the best if there was something that could be found good in a person who was otherwise blinded by the cultural blinders of, you know, chattel slavery, that he was, it's just a certain degree represented this. Um, and again, there's people that have written books pro and con, there's all sorts of continuing arguments about, about him, but that certainly was what we were taught um, at the school, which of course was not just had minority students attending and they had to come to grips with, you know, going to a convocation in a, in a chapel that, that howls the Lee family, you know, and things like this. And again, I think that it's a worthy conversation about the frailty of, of the human person, the reality that all of us are blind to something in our current generation that future generations will probably um, see more clearly or at least, or, or in a sense, judge us by. Um, but to ignore the um, that human reality and to somehow, as it were, just... Um, erase to attempt to erase the past warts and all by um, removing um, in this case statues or any remembrance of a uh, time that would that came before I think is a is a is as someone recently put it it really does set us up to repeat the errors of the of the past if we aren't learning from them good and bad then we are we are going to enter into a stage where we just simply make it up again. And humans have shown a real proclivity to making it up worse um, than, <laughs> than we would otherwise. I think, uh, I think Mark Marshall had a really good point in the article he wrote for Stan Firm. I think it came out yesterday, um, which was Tuesday, if you're listening on Friday, which was that, you know, God was very careful not to write or inspire a hagiography. It was, he was very, very uh, clear in this, he is very, very clear in the scriptures about the great sins and wickedness, even of some of the men that we look back on and think of as saints, like you know David, <laughs> for example. And then the purpose is right, like, like we said, so that so we reading the scriptures recognize that there that no no one is good but God, and so we don't look to ourselves and to our own uh, virtue and to our own strength, but we look uh, outside of ourselves to to God and His promises. And I know that the you know statues are in scripture. I understand that, and now there is um, 
not that the symbol scriptures, but but I think re- eradicating them, you you do lose a lesson. You 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 lose an icon of a flawed people and a flawed past. There's a, I don't even know if I would necessarily support you know, tearing down statues of someone like Stalin or Lenin just because the, the standing there, you have to explain to your children who those people were, yeah. what they did, why the culture is the way it is because of what they did. And so what are we going to do in the future? It really is a living kind of, uh, the destruction of these things is really kind of a, takes that very cliched, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Well, it's no longer cliche, I think. It's, right. We're right back, we are right at that place. So I was gonna ask you before you said that last little phrase there, why can't we just learn about these things and events and people in school and not have to have statuary and things named after them that do seem to lionize them, but it sounds like, and you can tell me if this is what you meant, that actually having a statue in a square makes it impossible to ignore, that you would then have to, as you take your child on a walk, say, well, here's what that guy did. Yeah. And you have to talk about the society that did lionize that person, right? So, yeah. so if you're, take, I'll go back to Stalin again, you have this, you know, the, the, the massive, uh, brutalist statues of Stalin in in Russian towns and, and cities. Well, it's not just the it's not that you just have to explain to your child what Stalin did. You also have to explain the culture that, that would make such a statue. Right? Exactly, exactly. And and what does that do to human pride and vainglory? It decimates it, destroys it. Yeah, and the fact that I mean, particularly in the case of Stalin, you had otherwise you know civilized. Uh, people who had been cowed by fear and intimidation into uh, supporting an incredibly brutal and murderous regime, or at least, mm-hmm. or at least not yeah. not uprising, you know. And so, the one of the questions that's always posed is, do you think you would have been the person who would have stood up to Stalin, you know, in his torturous regime? Like, you know, that's one of the questions, you know, that yeah. we're we're sort of saying, like, oh, we would have been. Um, we definitely would have put our life, family, career on the line and then had threatened our children and our extended family killed to stand up to Stalin. No, you know, it's no, like, yeah. well, probably not, but, yeah, but uh, I mean, maybe. But but I agree with you, Matt. I think that this is where the, uh, I mean, there is a tightrope, I think, a tightrope walk between, um, which is why the, the committees in almost every city that have monuments like this, particularly controversial ones, where they, they, they wrestle with it. You know, is it a is it a shrine to a past that is that is sort of an unholy shrine? You know, is it a is it a teaching moment? Is it a, a legitimate part of our? Um, uh, you know, was it was he the founding father of our town and he's eponymous for our town? You know, something like this. Like these are why it's this was sort of one size fits all across the board with respect to these monuments. You know, it's like old old patriarchal uh, Western civilization slave owner bad. Uh, you know, well, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that describes our entire, um, the entire Western sort of historical tradition. I mean, not, not with every adjective, but like, it's more complicated than that, you know, and, and right. I'm very sympathetic to this. Like, for instance, at the, at the Lee Chapel, and I've, I'm sure that our one listener is not one of my classmates, but if, if he is or she is, then I'm sorry. But, you know, I, I think that having a, a Christian uh, chapel with, at the, where the, where the altar or the Lord's table normally is to have a giant, um, sarcophagus of Robert E. Lee, you know, lying in rest, um, does send, <laughs> send a the wrong message <laughs> to, uh, to people that I wasn't entirely comfortable with, you know, and I think that insofar as it is a 
sort of a mausoleum to the the founder of the at least the modern version of the school and and so be it you know you can make an argument that way but the idea that it was a at one point a, a christian chapel so mm-hmm. so situated i think you know the idea that you would close the doors is what the compromise was during you know official school gatherings so it wasn't just a school gathering around the the you know the blessed memory of our founding father um i i personally didn't have a problem with that and so i think that's where it's it's again i'm and i wasn't part of the decision although i didn't write a letter to the to the dean or the provost or anything but i think that the reality of human history is so much more complicated and the mm-hmm. the the reality of our divided selves, as Paul says, you know, particularly Christians, you know, with the war of the flesh and the spirit within us and the law and the, and the, the different the different hats that we all wear require a deeper conversation than what we're, well, this yeah. certainly what we're seeing right now. I, I mean, I put up a, a, I put something up on Facebook last week. Um, you as I was Facebook? watching. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, sometimes, sometimes I, I say things on Facebook. <laughs> um, but, but I put this uh, post up as I was watching, or I was reading about the USCSS grant statue being torn down. I don't even know where that was. I think a lot of this is not even historically informed destruction. It's just, it's just look, an old white guy, let's tear a statue down. Um, and it's a, and tearing down the statue is, is really just an act of revolution, not so much an act of moral vengeance against past evils. Yes. Um, it's it's a it's a statement that, that the whole edifice of our of our of Western Civ needs to come down, and it doesn't matter who he is. It, it, is it an old white guy? Take him down. Is it, well, I was talking to Mick and Nick about this a little while back. I think as I ran into this in the philosophy department in um when I was in college is with respect to Aristotle and Plato because you know Aristotle has some really backward ideas according to some about men and women in particular. Um, you know, and of course he had a lot of ancient ideas about all sorts of things, but, um, but that was how he was dismissed. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like read and digest and, you know, take and then sort of process it. Yeah. He was a, he was a a troglodyte, Neanderthal (laughs) mass, you know, uh, misogynist. And so therefore we don't have to read him. Therefore we don't have to interact with him or engage him. And I thought, you know, that allows for some really speculative papers written with some lot of, you know, polysyllabic (laughs) words that say very little. Yeah, it's very heady. You know, it's, if you can if you can shortcut your education by just skipping over 1950 years of human thought and just write it yeah. all off as um, patriarchal, misogynistic, and unwoke or whatever, and then start now, just start saying stuff now and start making things up. Well, then that's pretty heady. You know, that's pretty. That no wonder you have a revolutionary yeah. fire if you don't if you don't have any um, ties to the. Um, to the tradition, you know, sort of understood broadly. And I think that's what, that's what's been the most disturbing for me because, you know, again, I'll keep going back to my own, I have, I'm steeped in, in relationships to Washington and to Washington and Lee. Um, you know, there was a church there named R.E. Lee Episcopal Church, which, you know, is one of the few churches, if the only one I know, an Episcopal church is named after a, a person, you know, and. You mean one who isn't a saint. Right, right. And I don't know the exact date it was named, but it, let's say it wasn't named during a time of um, great race relations in Lexington, Virginia, you know, and it wasn't, um, and I'm pretty sure. And so, you know, the vestry uh, made a decision to rename it back to its original name. That was the name when Robert E. Lee went to the church called Grace Episcopal. And I thought that was a prudent, you know, of course there are people, oh, you're, you're whitewashing history and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, you know, this goes back to the Stalin statues. There are sort of pedagogical reasons to not ignore and, and sort of memory hole the idea of Stalin. But at the same time, when you have a 
a church named after him, you might want to rethink that. Yeah, there's a little line there. You don't yeah, you know, I went to this place outside of Budapest when we were uh, when we were living in Vienna, and it had a it was a monument park outside of Budapest, and they took all of the old communist uh, monuments from Stalin and Lenin and Marx, and they put them in this big field. And, you know, it costs like 20 bucks to get in, which is great irony, of course, you know, and they sold all these little, um, these mugs and all these stickers, you know, and this woman that brought us around, she was a, she was a Hungarian and she spoke uh, really great English and basically walked in front of each one. And I won't use the exact words she did because of our, uh, the, the delicate ears of our listeners, but basically cussed and spat in front of each one. It was like, and here wow. is another example of blankety blank, piece of blankety blank, and then dropped it. And, um, <laughs> And I said, well, this is really enlightening you know, in terms of, but it was fascinating yeah. because all that statuary wasn't just destroyed. Um, it was put into a different context. And so I think this is where, you know, the nuances of it uh, really are important because the, the conversation, it's not a conversation right now. It's somebody I saw on Facebook um, pointed that, you know, one of the, the people had, had desecrated like the statue of the first that was commemorating the first all black infantry unit or something, you know, and this is just so yeah. random, you know, like right. giant Black Lives Matter, you know, <laughs> spray paint. Right. It's like, well, indeed, you know, like that's, <laughs> that's what we're talking about. But, um, you know, but I think that's where this, this, my prayer in the midst of this is that something of a, of a adult conversation will come on the other side of this, but I'm afraid what I'm afraid is that the revolutionaries that are seem to be agitating otherwise people who seemingly otherwise would be rational and more considered about it um, are just not going to want to stop until until it's all torn down. I think I saw I think this was a joke, but I saw somebody share something about how the universities that were associated with or founded by slaveholders should be abolished. And that includes like Yale and Brown and several others. This is the logical end of where this thinking goes. If you're going to abolish anything that refers to a sinner, you're going to have to tear everything down to the ground. That's right. Because there are no other things because there are no other kinds of people. Yeah. I, I do think that it would be it would benefit it would be beneficial for everybody to you know actually read a good biography of of say Robert E. Lee and then read a very good biography of Adolf Hitler <laughs> and compare the two men. I mean, there's there's a significant difference in in virtue and moral cal- moral caliber and, and insight. Reading read a, read an actual biography of, of Ulysses S. Grant and the um, other men from from this time. And and realize, I mean, there there are some who are who are authors of wickedness, and who are um, who are who who are creators of systems that destroy, and others who are born within systems that have been created long before them, who who sinfully participate in them, but don't have they don't have the culpability that that others have. And one good thing about reading biographies, I think, is you just gain whoever you're reading your biography, whoever the biography is about, even the most wicked person. Um, I, I was reading a biography of Adolf Hitler, and you find yourself having a little bit of pity. So you, this is this is a human person, human being who has let himself or herself be completely corrupted. In the case of Adolf Hitler, or this is a human being who is not sufficiently interrogated the moral. Uh, building blocks of his or her own culture. And so he, he or she's being unthinkingly swept along with it and even defending it in places. And that's more like what someone, what someone like Robert E. Lee would be. 
Um, and, and so you, anyway, you gain you, because you're a human and you know how susceptible you are to influences around you, it, it, it gives you a little sympathy for and humility. And humility. You say, who, but for the grace of God, I mean, who knows, who knows who I would have been in 1857? Right. What, what kind of, if I were living in South Carolina in 1857, what would I have thought um, about these things? Or what might I do in one year from now? Mm-hmm. That will be some horrible thing that I will not even believe that I could do. And yet I find right. myself, because of whatever, this seems to be the kind of thing that most people end up at. They, they reflect on their lives and they say to themselves, how did I get caught up in that? Or how did I become the kind of person I swore I would never be? Right. That's right. And the only way, as you say, the only way we can have compassion is to see that capability in ourselves. And as you said there, but for the grace of God, go I. But I think that's why the, the real sort of disturbing part about this is the breath um, that the argumentation has taken well beyond just, you know, systemic racism, you know, however defined, you know, well beyond um, uh, sort of uh, partiality and, and people being racist on skin color. because. What the, the, the conflation of the arguments comes down to is that the basic building blocks or the cornerstones of the tradition of Western civilization, you know, are, can be defined by, by isms, you know, patriarchy, um, sexism, misogyny, uh, racism, and, you know, litany of other problems. And to maintain any, any sort of positive viewpoint on that to some is to uh, essentially confess your complicity in the, in the problem, you know? And so, so part of the argument about the statuary is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, you know, what, how, if you were the best example of the, of the old regime, the old regime was all wrong down to the core and it has to go. And so, you know, you're going to see it unless it gets stopped or unless a conversation about, you know, let's have a, let's say, okay, let's put a pin in, 1850 and look at all the ills and all the terrible things but let's also look at maybe some of the advances that the society had taken you know it wasn't it wasn't perfect and we certainly don't want to go back there and there was a lot of things that that we we are um, ashamed of our forefathers for believing and perpetuating and yet you know it was 1850 it wasn't it wasn't 550 you know i mean like so was there something good about this you know and i think that's where the the sort of conversation needs to happen because if you if you want to acknowledge something of the good and the progress, even while wholeheartedly acknowledging the, the sort of fits and starts and the, the black eyes and the, the clay feet that even the best of our forefathers had, um, is still a bridge too far for many. Because they say until it is, um, it's all presupposed on the wrong thing. And it does fundamentally get down to, um, to rejection of Christianity, you know, the, the ultimate oppressive religion. I mean, Nietzsche saw this, you know, the ultimate sort of guilt-inducing sort of master-slave relationship was a Christian relationship to its yeah. people. And so once that could be overthrown, you know, speaking of Hitler, you know, people loved this idea. Once you could overthrow that and get power into yourself, well, then you were able to mold society in, right. the, in the actual way it should go. You're the potter and the world is the clay, not God is the potter and you are the clay. Yeah, and this is an explicit statement by Marx and Lenin. We've talked about this before. You know, one of the reasons Lenin was so murderous was because he said that every living human being, ostensibly other than himself, had been so corrupted by 
um, the capitalist Western sort of uh, system that, you know, if we could rehabilitate them, that would be fine. But more than likely, they just needed to be killed. And that was how he, you know, an otherwise educated, you know, philosopher just came to the decision, you know, over a period of time that he alone had the authority to, to license, I mean, to put everyone else to death. And, for the um, sake of the people. For the, yeah, for the people well, yeah, for the future, you for, know, right? for the... That's right. For the, what is that wonderful movie, Hot Fuzz? You know, for the uh, what is the refrain they keep saying? For uh, the greater good. For the greater good. Mm-hmm. So they, and that's yeah. awesome. They ended up killing half the people in the town for the greater good. Yeah, you know, well, this is for your. This is how for your are we good. going to Just make everything forward until unless there's blood? That's right. You're bringing up the idea of Christianity being something that is also associated with just with Western Civ. Uh, on the far. You don't see many of them within our circles, but on the far fringes of the secular uh, critical theory movement, there is this, you know, there's this idea, of course, evangelism is itself a form of colonialization. You're, you're, sure. you're, you're, you're corrupting uh, peoples and trying yes. to uh, take away their culture and, and kind of make them assimilate into who you are. It has nothing to do with, um, with with actual concern for souls. It's it's a colonial act, and that as why I was reading Twitter uh, this last weekend. Well, there's and, your mistake. Uh, yeah, that was. And boy, reading Twitter. <laughs> I was I was scrolling to Twitter. Yes, and, yes. and here's this uh, woman, Christian woman. She tweeted, "Proselytization is colonialization." That's right. That's right. And yeah. and she and, and I she said, "I'm a Christian." but I will no longer try to make anyone believe what I believe because yes. that's an act of colonialization. Yeah, I ran into this first head on in the Diocese of Europe and the Church of England because this is where you get sent or you go if you want to work in sort of ecumenical or intercultural um, sort of environments, uh, at least back in the 20 years ago. I mean, now, you know, you don't have to go far in London to do that. But nevertheless, uh, people who were sent there or went there were expressly to me would often say like, you know, well, we're not evangelizing. Don't worry. Like we're not proselytizing. We're not um, because of this. When, when the faith becomes totally horizontalized, as we talked about, mm-hmm. it's simply a sociological phenomenon. Well, then it does become a certain sense of cultural imperialism to just mm-hmm. try to what talk somebody into the way that you dress. And you think that's sort of Christian or something. I mean, it's You're ridiculous. Just- Sing the songs I sing in the yeah. language I sing them in. Yeah. Yeah, I read this as much um, in Ibram X's book, um, you know, about how to be an anti-racist. Uh, he talks mm-hmm. specifically about not um, trying to impose your culture on another culture. There's entire relativism amongst the um, sort of religious and sociological sort of peoples, because anything short of that would be considered colonial. And of course, you know, this is what actually happened, is that the British Empire and the Dutch and the Netherlands and, and the, um, the Dutch and the Netherlands and the, <laughs> and the, and the uh, people uh, and the Finnish, and they did go all over the world and they did bring um you know some barbarous ways of of operating but they also brought priests and ministers and churches you know we had some woman come speak to us in seminary once who was from africa and her name was esther mambo remember nick she came and spoke and she spoke all about the uh sort of the post-colonial world of africa with respect to christianity which we're very sympathetic to we have a lot of friends and and you know from the sudanese church and the Ghanaian church and the uh, kenyan church um, but it was rather a negative presentation overall. And so the dean president at the time got up and said, well, Miss uh, Dr. Mumbo, thank you very much for your presentation. I was just wondering if there's anything positive at all you could say about 
um, about the British uh, in Africa. And she said, well, they did bring us the gospel. <laughs> and so again, that's a good thing. Right? <laughs> it sounds like a ter- but that sounds like a crazy thing. Our listener might even be uh, having his mind it. blown because that doesn't seem good enough right. for all of the other. Uh, How can that offset all the other stuff? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, ask the people who are right now enjoying eternal that happen but but you're right i mean it's uh you know the, the there was this kind of idea behind evangelism within the colonial perspective which is hey we got to teach these people english then we've got to teach them how to dress then we've got to teach them manners and then we can give them the gospel that's right and and it was a horribly it was a horrible way to do it but it does testify to the power of the gospel that despite all of that <laughs> horrific um you know really culture facing colonialization God used the preaching of the gospel still, even in that setting, Amen. to bring bring people to um, to faith in Jesus Christ, and that, and that's the thing. I mean, I, I do. I mean, I have my my parents, my in laws, and my wife, and her, all of her grandparents, all both sides, all the way back, missionaries in Africa, and they, you know, they're very sensitive to the idea that often Westerners would come in with the goal of just transforming the culture of uh, a, a, a people group to make it yes. Western-ish and then Christianity would be imported as part of that process without really thinking about the gospel. Um, and so now, you know, missionary organizations are very sensitive about that. We've got to yes. we, we want to come in and we want to learn the culture. We want to learn the language. We want to learn how people think. And then we want to share the gospel within the context of that culture. And that's, that's the right way to, right way to do it. But again, the fact is, uh, God is greater than even our messed up attempts to. <laughs> Amen. I have a Lutheran friend of mine, a Lutheran friend of mine who has a lot of Scandinavian um, uh, heritage says, you know, uh, jokingly that you should be grateful for all of the uh, Vikings that were baptized, you know, at the point of a sword, because most of your descendants, Christian descendants of some of those people. And yeah. I said, well, you know, that's one way of looking at it. Um, but I think, you know, this is what's what's um, fascinating because the conversation will continue amongst Christians as to what is distinctly Christian about, we used to say, quote unquote, Western civilization. Because, you know, there are aspects of it that were flowering uh, realities of Christianity. But um, but there are real, that's a real discussion. And if you live in a place where where cultural relativism means that you're essentially colonialist or imperialist by having an argument about various better or worse civilizational concepts well then that's a that's a different world than um than the one that i want to live in for instance because i want to have an argument like here's what christianity lays out as the basis for a civilizational concept each individual person is unique and distinct created in the image of god period tongue tribe nation from that flows you know all manner of things but that isn't actually unique situation. I mean, that's not carried across the board and, um, you know, across the world and certainly has not been prevalent in every uh, human society. And, you know, that's not something I'm willing to give up. Um, You know, you can give up like button down shirts or whatever, whatever, you know, the cultural norms may or may not be at the time. But I think that there's a real discussion about when the gospel, when the Judeo-Christian um, sort of argumentation about who God is and who we are is laid at the foundation of then what would be built as a society. Well, then we we have a different a different 
building, a different, a different way of understanding than, than otherwise we would. And of course, this goes down to even questions like the sanctity of life, you know, abortion. I mean, our basis for human dignity does not lie in the quality of life, for instance. You know, this is why Christians started hospitals for, uh, you know, disabled people and, and people with, with mental deficiencies and things and led leper colonies. Like, this is why we were like, well, these people are not outside of the saving grace of God and are created in his image, albeit imperfect and flawed and, and broken because of sin. And that is a message that literally changed the world and has been imperfectly realized. And we're in the middle of continuing to watch it walk out. But the fact that you could just tear down every memory of the people that have gone before of us, before us, who have been attempting to, and at their best, to build upon the good and root out the bad is a... Um, is a real recipe for for destroying destroying a lot of the goods that we take for granted um, even to this day. I mean, it's like you know, who was it said? You know, we have a lot of problems in Western society, but our overlords mixing our concrete with sand is not one of them. You know, our our electricity is is running, and our hospitals still treat people of any you know, no matter what, you know, even if you don't have money. I mean, people get babies get picked up off the side of the road and and turned into the authorities. I mean, it's an amazing thing. I know we keep talking about this, but it's it's unfortunate we have to keep talking about it because it's the the drumbeat on the other side is just so loud. Like burn it down, right. burn it right. all down, and it's right. you know, and to to want to say not so fast. Um, let's talk about this. Let's come and reason a while. Is a hopeful prayer. You know, a lot of it is just an anthropological problem, and that and that and it is, I think is particularly a problem in the left, but it, I'm not, uh, the secular right probably has the same, some of the same foundations, but on the secular left, the assumption is that human nature is basically, you know, good and, and it can be, it can be fixed. So, so, or so shaped. shaped, right. So, you know, of course you'd want to tear down statues of people who were part of an old system that we're now replacing because now we're building a new thing and human beings are capable of just, becoming a whole new tree altogether. And, yeah, and the amount of pride that is about yeah. and thinking that you can now, you can make a law or a policy or a you know societal mm -hmm. sort of uh, program that now will eradicate all of these evils. You know, like you can do it. So you, here, After, you take what, it. 10,000 I mean, years of human I was in this. I've I was got in the right this, idea here. Yeah. It. I mean, I was in this class called the Shepherd Poverty Program in my senior year in college, and there was like this interdisciplinary aspect to it. And I remember I didn't get a very good grade because I was sort of impertinent, particularly by that point. And I just kept saying the same thing over and over again, which was like, none of these programs are going to actually fix the human heart. Like none of this, like you can convince and cajole and you can sort of coerce people all you want, but the fundamental problems lie at the, the level of the human heart. And until we take responsibility for our own sins, i.e. confess and repent and are raised to new life by faith, well then we will be constantly looking for someone else to to, to blame for, for the realities of our lives. And and that cuts across any any mm -hmm. color or nationality. That's not a that's not a unique to any person other than a sinner. And so I think that when we look at when we look at the hope of the world um, you know, we just keep preaching. I mean, I, I don't know what else to do and praying for revival and praying that the pain, the pain of sort of, uh, lost and, uh, wandering sheep, uh, the bleeding will get, uh, too loud enough that perhaps something, uh, by the power of the spirit of the real free message of the gospel will get through to people who, who may even at this moment be the most against, uh, Christianity as, as far as they know in their hearts. I mean, that's my, that's my hope is that, um, 
is that eventually something will have to change um, in some of the despair and sort of angry nihilism that we see uh, roiling around us. And, and it's my hope that that, that fire will not be um, fed, but quenched. That's a really important point. And this may be just a, little, just a little bit off topic. And if you want to you know, take this off later, you can, Nick. But, uh, but it's an important point that you make about preaching because in light of uh, what's happening, I mean, I've read several articles now saying, okay, preachers, you need to set aside your texts for Sunday for the next you know, three weeks, four weeks, and you need to be preaching about social justice and what it means to be pushing for justice in society. And okay, uh, I mean, I definitely think that it, you want to way, find ways to take what's going on right now in our society and apply the scriptures to them. However, what often happens when, at least in experiences that I've had, hearing sermons of that sort, is it's not, here's the gospel, we're all one in our sin, and we can all be one in our justification to the work of Christ. It tends to be more, well, here's what you need to do to fix the world, and here are the steps we're going to take to do it, and you get on board, and then we're going to fix the world. Okay, fine. Yes, we need to do things to, to, to correct injustices, but, but you're right. If the whole program, especially come from the church, for fixing society has to do with us working harder and finding new solutions, we're, it's just going to fail. It's just going to fail. We have Amen. to have the gospel. Amen. Not only am I not going to edit that out, I'm going to ask you guys as sort of your final word to say even maybe one more thing about that, about the good news preached into this. We've talked about all the various ways we're interacting with um, what we might call the sins of our forefathers, the sins of our nation, even our own sins in the past. What do you preachers have as good news for somebody who's grappling with the sins of the past? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think one, you continue to point back to the apostolic witness and show how from the very beginning, the message of reconciliation in Christ uh, brought together um, enemies, brought together people who had legitimate grievances, uh, historical and present, um, you know, and united people into one body. And you, so you begin there and you say, this is, this is the project. Like the fact that we are seeing it fractured is unsurprising because we live in a world of sin, but that the power of the gospel is stronger than our, um, than our histories and our even current antagonistic situations is also been proven. And so you begin to, you start with that confidence as a preacher. And then you, I think you, you preach and you say, you know, you look at the, you look at the Old Testament and you say that um, when Ezekiel is talking about the sins of the fathers, he says, you know, they'll be visited. The, 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 the reality of sin from the fathers is certainly ever present in the lives of the children. I mean, ask any child whose father was thrown in prison. You know, ask any child whose father was, was a bad father. And you know that the effects of sin can be felt. And yet the, the judgment on that sin is perpetuated on the sons and the daughters on to the extent that they perpetuate and continue in that pattern. And so we have this wonderful freeing message. We say we can weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and look at the history of our country and be grateful for the good and, and repent of the bad in terms of, um, in terms of wanting to get better, but also look at where we are now and, and be freed from the wages of sin and be raised to new life in the, the realized hope 
that God, by the power of the Spirit, can unite even, if you could believe it, people of different races. I mean, that's what we have to offer, and that um, that they're united not by a um, sense of superiority and inferiority or a sense of guilt and shame, but by a genuine new life by faith in Christ to a new person, his body on earth to witness to the world that will not know this or find it foolish, in fact, is what we preach, and that it's considered to be uh, too little for some um, and not enough action for others, well, that uh, also puts us back in the place of the Apostle Paul, who says it's foolishness to the Greeks and it's a stumbling block to the Jews. But for us, for us, black, white, you know, whatever our ethnicity or nationality, whatever 23andMe says is the mix of who I am, um, it is the power of God unto salvation, and that's what we continue to preach. Amen. I think I think there is a place for a really strong preaching of the law, right? If, if so, when someone comes to me who feels guilty, I want to probe that. Okay, well, why do you feel guilty? Did, do, what have you done? Uh, do you do you in this case do you harbor any kind of racial prejudice in your heart? Are you do you have hateful feelings toward people who are not like you? If that's the case, well, well then confess that and repent and and then be assured of the promise of Christ that you're forgiven and that sin is washed clean and you're and you are right now being cleansed of all unrighteousness. You can you can you can be free of that. The problem of course in our present age is is that the there's the sin or the law that's being preached isn't God's law, so there's no redemption from it. But if you can take someone who's been who feels the burden of a secular law and say, okay, no, let's go back to the divine law. Do you have partiality? Are you, are you considering yourself above others? Do you do that personally? Well, no, I don't. Okay, well then, don't let a law that's not part of the law convict you. Don't let a human law convict you of a, a sin, because that's not a sin. But if you personally have that kind of thing, then you need to confess that, repent, and be forgiven. Um, and then if you don't have that, well, then sure. I mean, look around. I mean, is there, is there something that's unjust that's right. that you can contribute to to help? And then go do that. Absolutely. That's right. But, but don't do it out of this kind of sense of sense that you've got you've to make up for something you haven't done. Do it because you've been loved by God. You've been, you've been set apart and made his child. And and he's loved Amen. you. you for that. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, my, one of my things I keep telling people now is because, you know, the rejoinder to all this are, from certain sides is like, well, it's all because of the breakdown of the family. It's a breakdown of role models, a breakdown of stability. And I say, well, you could provide that stability then. How about it? Like, I know a lot of programs, a lot of after school programs, a lot of mentorships, a lot of big brother, big, you know, um, how about it? You know, and, and more often than not, so far, people have kind of backed away slowly. <laughs> but but I've been a little bit more adamant about that because I've said, well, you know, I'm not totally in a disagreement with you that a young man who grows up without a father, you know, has to fight and find his way in life. And that seems like a terrible way to grow up, even if you, you know, wh wherever you grow up. And so let's find out some ways to, to fix that, you know, if that's what your problem is. But I think that's where that's where you can be free to consider that as opposed to, um, um, you know, sort of having it. Exactly. Exactly. So. Um, well, I just, I think, um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> Let me wrap that up. Wrap that up. J.D. Coke, quote, I think, I think all, all sorts of stuff. stuff. All sorts of stuff, that's right. I've got all sorts of thoughts about all sorts of things. Um, so... Yeah. Well, that is a good word, you guys. It is that time again. It's over that time again. As usual, we come to the end of the time that we give ourselves with much more that we could say. It'll have to be saved for a future episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and we will be back next week 
Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh,